Yeah, I'm kind of known for creating problems wherever I go. And I'm very thankful that each and, one of, each and every one of you are here today. I know that the world we live in is becoming increasingly demanding, and there are a million distractions out there, and it's very, very hard to uh, gather groups of people together. But uh, you've made it a point to be here, and you know, people often say, well, I hope enough people will come to make it worthwhile. I had a guy up in Alaska ask me if I would come up and do a conference, and I said, well, sure, I'll come. He said, how many people do I have to get together to make it worth your time? And I said, well, I've got to have at least five, but I'll bring three with me. <laughs> so I never worry about numbers. I worry about souls. And uh, my prayer is that God's going to use the time we spend together to be a blessing in our lives. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm really kind of excited to uh, see what comes out because I spent a lot of time preparing for these lessons, and uh, we've had uh, a wonderful week. We came up a week early, and uh, we've been staying with uh, our friend Andre, and his hospitality has been marvelous, but we've had that extra week to spend, and I've added to the notes. Your notes are about half what mine are now. Uh, these notes will actually be posted online when the messages come up, but if you're interested in getting a much more full uh, work of notes, uh, you can talk to uh, Jared, and he has these notes. You'll notice your first class is a couple of points, and uh, mine is three pages, so... Let's just begin once again with a word of prayer and ask God to use this time as only He can. Our time is wasted unless God the Holy Spirit takes up the sword of truth and pierces our soul. And we come in broken. You know, there's a purpose to that world out there, that meat grinder that we call the world, and that is to break us. The purpose of coming in here is for the Holy Spirit to take glue and rebuild us. So we're going to get some rebuilding done today. If you've come in broken, I hope you're excited about what God's going to do in your life. So if you would, join me in prayer as we begin, and we'll launch into what the Lord has for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come together, we recognize our helplessness, our weakness and frailty, our inadequacy. That's really what the world teaches us. It teaches us that we're not as smart as we think we are. It teaches us that we're not nearly as strong as we would like to be. It, in many ways, breaks us and shreds us, tears us apart. And then we come to you and we find that you receive the broken, you bring healing into our lives, you bring cleansing and purification, you bring restoration to fellowship with you and with blessing. We're so thankful, Father, for the miracle that you work in our lives, moment by moment and day by day as we depend on you. Father, we're launching into a topic that is rarely ever spoken about or touched on, and yet it, the scripture is so full of references to the importance and even commands to us to meditate on your word. And our prayer is that God the Holy Spirit will work not only through the word that's taught, but in our souls to meet individual needs, 
from the truths that are going to be presented to draw us closer to you, to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, to make us more effective in a world that is increasingly burdened, that is filled with souls that are crying out for answers and for help. That's why we're here. That's our mission in life. So help us be equipped by the time that we spend together so that we can go out onto that mission field and accomplish what you have determined for us to accomplish. Let the Lord Jesus Christ be honored and glorified in everything said and done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just begin with the two verses that are at the beginning of your notes because I think they're very important. By the way, this is biblical meditation revisited because I was asked to do a conference on meditation in Arkansas last spring. You are fortunate enough, you have the notes of that conference behind these notes. The notes that begin your notes are new, they're added to that. Some of you have listened to those sessions, so you'll be getting uh, some new information as we look at it this morning. But the, the passages that we have, Isaiah 26, verse 3, I want you to think deeply on this. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. There's only one person that ever walked this earth that fulfilled that verse completely. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived a life of calm and a life of peace, a life of poise and a life of power because he fulfilled this verse. And to the degree that you and I learn to keep our mind riveted on the Lord, and we can only do that through the Word. You know, we don't, uh, we don't approach the topic of thinking on God as God as I see him. You hear people oftentimes say, well, the way I see God or the way I think of God, but that's not the issue. The issue is how has God presented himself to us through his word. The second in Psalm 19, and we're going to be there in just a moment. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It's very interesting that as I've told people, and this happened clear back last spring when I was going to Arkansas, they would say, what are you going to be speaking on? And I said, meditation. And it's kind of like the eye, eyebrows go up and then they go, are we going to be doing yoga? Uh, you know, what are we going to be doing? We need to distinguish, and there's a reason that I put in both of these, biblical meditation. We're not talking about Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation has as its goal the emptying of your mind. The idea of putting everything out of your mind, which as you can imagine, creates a vacuum. Satan loves vacuums. Eastern meditation will lead you into demonism. It will lead you into uh, satanic control. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for biblical meditation, which is to fill and saturate the mind with the truth of God's word, and then as we deal with that truth, how it relates to us, where we are in our spiritual life, and in the world around us. I'd like to just begin by asking a question. How many of you practice, regularly practice meditation? If you regularly practice meditation, would you raise your hand? I don't see a single hand. Uh, maybe one, kind of, sort of. 
But I beg to differ. Every one of you practices meditation. Every one of you. What do I mean by that? I mean that we meditate on the things that are important to us. To meditate means to fill the mind, to bear down with the mind, to concentrate, to focus, to parse, to pull apart, to evaluate, and as Martin Luther pointed out 500 years ago, all humans meditate on the things that they love. You know, you go to school and you get a young man who looks across the classroom and he sees this gorgeous young lady sitting there and he is filled with fantasies of himself being the knight in shining armor and here is his lady in waiting and he will daydream about her nonstop. He's on the basketball court, he's on the football field, he's out there on the track, but he's not even present because he's thinking about this young lady that he set his heart on. That's meditation. We think about something we would like to have. We, we think maybe about a position that we would like to attain. And we think about these things all the time. And that is really meditation. But what we want to do is we want to focus our meditation on Scripture. And we want to learn why should we meditate? Why is it important? And I recognize that I'm really up against kind of the, the tidal wave of opposition from the world that we live in today because... Meditation takes time, and time is very precious. And many of us, our time is eaten up by a multitude of demands. If you have a busy job, if you have a growing family, uh, if you're involved in many uh, extra activities outside the home, your time is precious. But I want to suggest to you that the most important time for you is to take time in biblical meditation. And we're going to look how to do that. And I'd like you to open with me to Psalm chapter 1 because just as kind of an appetizer and uh, opening the door to the idea of meditation, I want to read two Psalms. Psalm 1 uh, is one of the foundational Psalms and scriptures <coughs> regarding meditation. So I'll just quickly read it and point out a few things from it. Blessed is the man. Just, you could just ponder on that for a little while. You want blessing? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight. You know, later on in Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Can you imagine the implications of that promise? Delight yourself in the Lord. And here he's telling us that his delight. By the way, the word delight in the Hebrew is a word that speaks of a romantic embrace. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. How many promises are contained in those three verses? Verse 4 says, The ungodly are not so, they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows 
the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. And there in your notes, you have actually six promises that we're given regarding meditation. I'll just quickly touch on them. I don't want to spend too much time just on the introduction here. Meditating on God's word will deliver us from spiritual inertia. You notice that the guy is walking and then he stops and he's standing and then finally he's sitting. And what this is talking about, the whole idea of inertia is that there's an object moving or a person moving and the opposing forces begin to result in the slowing of the movement of that object or that person so that you're going on your way through life and you stop because something grabs your attention and you begin to ponder and consider and reflect on it and before you know it, there you are sitting. And I would suggest that these three postures, the walking, the standing, and the sitting are reversed in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, we start out sitting in the first three chapters, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Chapters four and five teach us how to walk in the spirit and walk by faith. And then chapter six, as we engage in the spiritual war, we take our stand and we hold our ground. So meditation not only delivers us from that effect of spiritual inertia it creates and sustains a delight in the word of God. I see so many Christians who have no real hunger for the word of God. And the reason they don't have a hunger is they're not used to feeding on it. You develop a hunger for what you feed on. You know, the more you eat, the more you want to eat. Have you ever noticed that? I've noticed that this week because uh, our host has been just feeding and feeding and feeding as I think I've gained 10 pounds since I got here. And we appreciate Andre's hospitality, but if you begin to eat something you've never eaten before and you say, I don't like that very much, eat it long enough and you'll begin to like it. You develop a taste for it. You develop a hunger for that which you feed on. Meditation opens our soul to the grace provisions of God we see in verse 3. There's a blessing to be had. There's a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. The source and supply of God's grace begins to permeate our lives. It affects our conduct and our service. And the result, of course, is that we live our lives under the blessing of God. Not without trial, not without difficulties, not without adversity. But you know what? It's a lot easier to go through the afflictions of life when you're under the blessing of the hand of God makes all the difference in the world. Martin Luther came to saving faith by meditating on Romans 1.17. When Paul talks about the gospel, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for therein, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There's a progress that's taking place. Little seed faith to ultimately faith that's been planted and starts growing like that mustard seed and ultimately as it relies on the grace provisions of God begins to bear fruit. And Luther, of course, was a monk and the monks practice meditation. What a shame that everybody but Christians practice meditation. And as an unbelieving monk, his mind fixed on Romans 1.17 and he just kept thinking over and over and over again on it until finally the hardness of his heart and the darkness of his soul broke open to the sunshine of the truth of God's word and he realized that salvation is a gift of God offered to us by grace 
and through faith. Luther believed that when we meditate, and this is something you might think about, the Hebrew words, and by the way, if you'll leave through, I think it's probably page 13 or so, uh, you have the Hebrew and the Greek words for meditation, and you can look at those later. I didn't want to take up our time uh, dealing with them so much, but some of the Hebrew words mean to mutter, to speak, or to utter. And because of that, Luther believed that when we meditate, it's good for us to speak out loud. And the reason he believed this is because as you take a scripture, and if you're spending time, for example, and I would encourage you to find a time and a place and a purpose for meditation. The notes from the previous conference will give you a lot of examples. Isaac is walking in the field in the evening and he is meditating and what happens? Down the track comes Rebecca. He had a time and he had a place. And he had a purpose. And as you find that time in your day and that place, and sometimes it just means getting up a little bit earlier. And it doesn't mean that you have to spend hours. 15 minutes of really dedicated meditation is worth more than hours of just wasted time. But as you find that place and as you begin to focus in, you might consider reading over a scripture like Psalm 1 and read it out loud. And the reason that it's important to read it out loud is because you're not only seeing it, but you're speaking it. And as you speak it, you're training your tongue to speak the Word of God. Now you're hearing it. Your ear is hearing the Word of God. And Luther believed that as we speak the Word and hear the Word, it penetrates the heart and begins to change the life. What does Paul tell us in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by reading the Word of God. Remember? Oh, that's, your Bible doesn't say that? We must have a different version. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We want to engage the total person. If I'm reading it, if I'm thinking it, if I'm speaking it, if I'm hearing it, if I'm pondering how to implement it, and then go out and put it into practice, everything in me, spirit, soul, and body, is now engaged in considering the Word of God. By the way, at the bottom of, I think probably the bottom of page two for you, it talks about Luther writing in his commentary on Deuteronomy 14.1. I'm quoting another fellow here, and I looked at Deuteronomy 14.1, and I think it's the wrong reference because I can't see any connection to meditation, but you can look that up. And What's that? 14.7 and 8? Write that down. All right. Deuteronomy 14, 7 and 8. Good. Thank you for that because I wasn't sure uh, where it came from. Luther said humans meditate on what they desire. We've already made that point. Turn with me to Psalm 19. We just sang about it. Some of us sang about it. I think some of you maybe hadn't heard that one before. Psalm 19. Notice that the first focus of our meditation in verses 1 to 6 is the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. 
In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. He rejoices like a strong man to run his race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from his heat. And so focusing on creation itself points us to the Creator. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made so that everywhere you go in the world, men are without excuse. There are three witnesses to God that are available to man. Number one, creation, open to everyone who lives in this world. Number two, conscience, a reality within the heart and the soul of every single human being that lives. And then we have, of course, the Word of God, the content of Scripture. So if we meditate on creation, and creation leads us to inform the conscience and reflect on the Creator, there's going to be created a hunger why do some missions go into certain areas and not maybe a, an adjoining area? Why have missionaries penetrated at certain times certain areas? Because God knows the souls of men and He sees those who have been reflecting on creation, reflecting on conscience. There's a hunger that's created. God sends the missions there. He's not going to send them where they're going to waste their time. So He is constantly providing the Scripture to those who have responded, first of all, to creation and to conscience. And we see that in the history of missions. And then in verse 7 through 11, we turn our attention to the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, their salvation. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple illumination. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now there is created within the soul that hope and that joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So it's very interesting in this section that we begin with salvation and we end with reward. The whole scope of the spiritual life from a moment of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to the point of looking forward into eternity and anticipating that my life has mattered. My life has accomplished something. I was not hit, put here aimlessly. I do not live in this time aimlessly. God had a purpose in bringing each one of us into this time and into this place, just as He had a purpose in bringing every person into their time and place in history. And to realize He has a purpose for my life. There's something for me to accomplish. I am an emissary of God. I am on a mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. And to fulfill that mission as stumblingly and as erringly as we do, gives us the ability to look forward and say, there is reward for my life. My life has mattered. My life has made a difference. My life has affected someone else. And so we see the whole scope of spiritual experience there. And then he goes into the conclusion, who can understand his errors? You know, meditation and illumination and spiritual growth doesn't mean a perfect life. 
Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. And then we end with that verse that we read at the beginning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Could I ask you, how in the world can the meditation of my heart be acceptable in his sight if I'm not doing it? Let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Well, this introduces us basically, and all of this has been introduction, and uh, sometimes introduction can take whole class. This one didn't. It leads us to the five areas of meditation we're going to deal with during this conference. We have five commands in the New Testament on things that we're to meditate about. And what I've done is take those five commands and I've put them in what we would consider to be a logical sequence, not necessarily where they occur in the New Testament in that order, but rather in the order that would be the logical sequence of our spiritual experience. And so we're going to look at meditation on our Savior and our so great salvation, first of all. Then we're going to look at meditation on ourself in light of our salvation. Third, we're going to look at meditation on biblical spirituality. What is it? What does it look like? What is its effect on our life? Number four, we're going to look at meditation regarding our spiritual gift and ministry. Very important. And then finally, when is the wrong time to meditate and why? And we'll see that one uh, on Sunday morning. Hopefully we'll get through the first three today. Uh, as Jared mentioned, we are having a question and answer. Uh, if, uh, and by the way, I'm not uh, shy or uncomfortable at all. If I say something that doesn't make sense to you, or if a question comes up and you want to shoot your hand up, I'm happy to try to answer your questions on the spot. Um, I'm not afraid to say I don't know. I'm not afraid to say, let me go do some study, and I'll bring the answer back to you. So feel free to do that. But our last session today after uh, the uh, session after lunch is just going to be open for you to bring up any questions that you may have. We want to begin by meditating on the most important thing. You know, it's always best to start with the most important thing. As an old friend of mine, Gary Horton, some of you know Gary. I just talked to him on the phone the other day. Uh, he has a uh, Thursday afternoon class. Uh, I would encourage you to pray for him. It's at a uh, disabled veterans facility, and he has a bunch of vets in there. A lot of them Guys going all the way back to Vietnam, I think, and he is leading these guys in Bible studies on Thursday afternoon, so keep him in your prayers. But he always used to say this, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you want them here. There's thank you. Where... That's good. Thank okay. you, Jared. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And in the Christian life, Jesus Christ is the main thing. He's it. He is the focus. And so that's where we're going to begin. If you would open with me to the mysterious and often overlooked book of Hebrews. We've just been studying Hebrews in my Friday evening class. We have a Friday evening class in Camp Verde, Arizona. A beautiful group of people meet together in a home. Uh, the lady uh, provides a meal for those that want to come early. 
and then we gather together and we study the Word, and we just finished Hebrews, and it was uh, really a, a pleasure going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, those classes will also be on our website, and the notes for Hebrews will be on the website if you're interested. But we come to the book of Hebrews, a uh, little understood book, often overlooked book, um, many times misunderstood, but we're going to get the real meat of the book because you know what? Hebrews is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about who He is. It's all about how great He is. It's all about how magnificent His life and His work and what He accomplished for us really are. And so if you'll open with me to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, you'll notice that it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And I'll just read on to get the context. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Consider Jesus. That's the thrust of what he's saying. Consider Jesus. And there's enough in verse 1 that you and I could spend a lot of time thinking about it. The word consider introduces us to one of the words for meditation, and it's kata noeo. Now, noeo has to do with the operation of the mind. In other words, the thinking facility. Kata is a preposition that means down or down upon. The idea when you put the two together is bear down with your mind. Have you ever said to someone, look, stop for a minute and just concentrate. Would you just focus on this? Would you just think for a minute, put everything else aside and think about this? We probably say that to our kids, you know, they're distracted and going a hundred different directions. We're saying, wait a minute, stop and think about what's going on. I can remember many times with my dad, we'd be out working and uh, I would do something wrong and uh, something bad would result because as we know, actions have consequences. And when you do the wrong thing, it usually has a wrong result. And he would say, why did you do that? And I'd say, I didn't think. And before I could get on to, I didn't think this was going to happen. He would say, that's your problem. You didn't think. We have to learn to think. So the idea again is to bear down with the mind. And again, uh, the other words for meditate you'll find on page 11 and 12. The bottom of page 11 verse, and page 12 will have a lot of those for you. This is a command to start doing what you haven't been doing. It's an urgent command. You haven't been doing this. You need to begin to bear down with your mind. You need to begin thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting that he tells us what he wants us to think about is Christ as the apostle and the high priest. I want you to just think about those two titles and positions for a moment. This is the only place in the Bible Jesus is called an apostle. And what is an apostle? Well, an apostle is someone who is commissioned from the highest authority to represent that authority to someone else. The Lord Jesus Christ was commissioned in the throne room of God in heaven to step down into this world, and what that cost him, you and I can't even comprehend. 
When Paul tells us in Philippians 2 and verse 5, let this mind, this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he eternally existed, and I'm translating some of the meaning of the Greek words as I relate this to you, it's a bit of a paraphrase, but I'm trying to pick up some of the ideas, who although he eternally existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to cling to. But he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation and being found as a man, coming in the form of men, coming in human body, truly man, but truly God, what did he do? After he lays aside his glory in heaven, after he steps down into this world as a helpless infant born to a peasant family in a poor country called Israel, in a little manger in Bethlehem, what does he do? That's still not enough. He humbles himself even more. He humbles himself to death, even death on the cross. That's your apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world to bring to you and I the opportunity, not just of eternal life, but abundant life here and now. Consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our profession. As the apostle, he brought us the gospel as the high priest. He fulfilled the gospel, offering himself on the cross. He's the only high priest who was ever at one and the same time the priest and the offering. And he offers himself on the altar of the cross to pay the penalty of the sins of the entire world. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. It is the only go-between, if you will, between the throne of heaven and this broken and sinful and crying world. Job, the earliest book we believe of the Old Testament, written long before Abraham. Job cried out in his sufferings and his anguish. And in Job chapter 9, if you go there sometime, Job 9, 32 and 33, he said, he, he's trying to reason with God. He's, try, he's doing what we all do. We ask why. We, I was talking with someone and they said that they were asking why. And I said, that's the one question God usually will not answer. It's the wrong question for us to ask. What we should be asking is, what? Not why is this happening to me? He won't tell us, what would you have me to do in this situation? There's something that I need to learn. What is it? There's something that I need to change. What is that? Or there's something that I am to gain out of this experience that I will be able to offer to someone else. All of our sufferings, all of our heartaches, all of our difficulties are sanctified the moment we learn a spiritual lesson from them and have something to offer someone else going through that same kind of a situation. It's amazing how God does this. But Job said, he is not a man that he and I can reason together. How can I lay hold of him? 
And then he said, oh, that there was a mediator. I think the old uh, English in the King James calls it a daysman. But the idea is, oh, that there was a mediator who could lay his hand on us both. And that's a perfect picture of what the mediator is. The mediator has the interests of both parties at heart. It is a sense of balance in that both are precious, both are priceless, both are important, and I need to pursue the interests of both. So here the Lord Jesus, as truly God, lays His hand on the Father. Jesus, as truly man, lays His hand on us, and He becomes the mediator and the go-between between us and the Lord. Job said, if only there were such a person. But it's very interesting because if you go later to Job 19, you find in his thinking about it, and dare I say, in his meditating on this need, he discovered something. I had the good fortune of having a teacher in high school about 1966, 1967. Uh, we were told that we could not have Bible study in school and so our literature teacher decided that we were going to study as literature the book of Job. And for an entire semester, we studied and wrestled with the questions and issues and the dialogue between Job and his friends. But one of the things she did was she randomly assigned to each of us a chapter and we were to study that chapter, and when we got to that chapter, we were to present that chapter to the class. By the luck of God, and you know what I mean, I got chapter 19. And I had only been a believer for about a year, and so I was able to stand up and teach. In fact, just turn with me. Hold your place in Hebrews. We're not done, but go back to the book of Job, because I want you to see this. Job 19. He continues struggling with his loss, his heartache, his suffering. And he says in Job 19 and verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Well, guess what? We're reading them here. We're reading them over 4,000 years after they were written. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. In other words, He is living right now. I know that my Redeemer lives, and He will stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. How did he come to this illumination? He had no scripture to read. I'll tell you how he came to it. He came to it by dwelling on the object of his desire. And as he meditated on the need that he had and on his understanding of God, whatever it was at that point, he began to realize God will not leave me hopeless. God is not going to leave me helpless. He is going to provide this Redeemer. And the theology in verses 24 through 27 is just absolutely amazing. I could spend a whole conference just on the theology in those verses. 
I know my Redeemer lives, an eternal Savior. And I know that He's going to stand on the earth, the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth, His earthly life and ministry. And not only is He going to stand on the earth during His incarnation in His earthly life, but one day He's coming back as King and He's going to establish His kingdom. And I know that even after my skin is destroyed in my body, resurrection, I will see my Redeemer who's coming to this earth as a man and I will see Him as the God that He is. Some pretty amazing stuff there. So when we come back to Hebrews chapter 3 and the author is telling us, consider Jesus, bear down with your mind, think about Him as the apostle who came from God to us. Think about Him as the high priest who offered Himself as a sacrifice. And most of you are familiar with the book of Hebrews. You know that all the way through the book of Hebrews, the author is building a case for the Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he's the greatest of all the prophets and of every form of revelation. In the rest of chapter 1, he is greater than all the angels. Then we come into chapter 2 and he's introduced to us as a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 3 we see him as being greater than Moses. Later in chapter 3 we'll find that he's greater than Joshua and he just keeps building this case. Who do you honor in the whole history of biblical story? He's greater. Put all of them together and he's greater. Therefore consider how great he really is. You know, John, I talked a moment ago about the importance of speaking and hearing and applying and so on and so forth. John really picks up on this idea in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You remember what he says? That which we have seen, that which we beheld, it's, it's really a kind of a graduation of the idea that which we've seen is kind of like the impact of the first time they laid eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says that which we beheld and the word actually is kind of a panoramic picture of observing someone under every condition and circumstance of life. That which we have heard, that which we have handled with our hands. And we ask the question, why does he say that and not he? Because as he gets down to verse 4, he says, of the word of life. Picking up on the gospel of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But what is John focusing on? He's focusing on, and I just, I can't help but wonder the, the thoughts, the emotions, and the feelings that must have flooded his soul as he sat down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write those words, and he's remembering the times traveling on the road, the times of Jesus ministering to the people, the times when possibly the Lord sitting by the fire and John reached down and gave him a hand to stand up or vice versa. The times that those hands broke the bread when his voice stilled the water and it all comes flooding back into John and he says, we experienced it all. And our problem is that we don't think God can do the same for us. You know what I hear people say all the time? 
If only we could have been there. If I could have been with them, I would have been so much stronger in my faith. Question, were they? Jesus picked 12 of the biggest blockheads of his generation to turn into disciples to show you and I what he can do with us. And that's why the scripture, what was that? That means you qualify. We are qualified, highly qualified. I often think of that. I'm glad you brought that up because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many mighty, not many brilliant, not many wise are called. And why is that? Because God uses the weak, the foolish, the base, the despised, the nothing. When I read that in Bible college, I said, man, I'm qualified. <laughs> and that's really what he's looking for. He's looking for those who are weak and humble in their own opinion so that he can take them and do mighty things with them. And so Jesus pulls these disciples together from many, many walks of life. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but he pulled together men who otherwise would never have been able to stay together. Peter's a loud mouth, John's a hothead. Give me two guys like that and put them together and see what happens. There's going to be a fight. And then you've got Levi, and he's a tax collector, and you've got Simon, Simon the Zealot, who is, was a member probably of the uh, Essene group, the zealots that they called the Sicarii. They carried a dagger so that if they happened to find a religious leader, a political leader that was corrupt, and they were isolated, they would take them out. That was their philosophy to life. And he... he brings this little band together and they begin to move and they, they become, for all their failings, what is the great success story of the disciples? They couldn't leave him. They couldn't depart from him. When John 6 tells us that many of his disciples, when he taught things, were a little bit difficult to uh, understand and assimilate and stomach, and many of his disciples stopped following him. He turned to the disciples and he said, are you also going to go away? You remember what Peter said? Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that was what molded that little band and held them together. I want you to notice a couple of secondary phrases here, not just Jesus, the apostle and the high priest, but notice that he speaks to the recipients of the letter as holy brethren. Holy brethren. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself in that light, but I would encourage you to do it. You know, one of the problems that we have today, and Satan is so wily and understands this so well, he has our whole country wrapped up in identity politics and identity issues. Because Satan knows something. What you identify as is what you become. Think about that for a moment. How do you identify yourself? How do you think of yourself? Now, oftentimes, because of our weaknesses and our failures, we beat ourselves down and we identify as a loser. And you know what? If you identify as a loser, guess what you're going to become? You're going to become a loser. 
When Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 8 and he says, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, if we begin to identify with that and understand that being more than conquerors starts not with anything I've done, it begins with everything that he's done. It begins with where I stand in his sight, who he sees me as. I remember many years ago when I first became a believer and a guy started coming into church and I remember the pastor asking him, uh, are you saved? Have you trusted Christ? And he said, yes, I am. And uh, somewhere along the line in the conversation, I was standing nearby, the guy said, I, I've trusted Christ. I am a, I'm a saved uh, individual, but I am just such a sinner. I am just such a sinful man. Well, that's a good thing to start at, but that's not a good thing to stay at. To understand our need is important, but to understand what God has done with that need is what leads us out of it. And so, holy brethren, from the moment that we trust Jesus Christ, we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And I don't know all of you, and there may be somebody here this morning that has never trusted Christ as your Savior, and I want to challenge you, without Him you are without hope, without life, and on your way to an endless and eternal hell. You know, we don't talk about hell anymore. But hell is a reality. The greatest question you'll ever face is where will you spend eternity? And until that question is answered based on the finished work of Christ, based on your faith in Him, based on the fact that God has made you a new creature in Christ, you have no hope. Once you have that, however, you need to understand that in the sight of God, imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are a member of this company. We are holy brethren in the sight of God. We are forever set apart to Him. It's not talking about our conduct. It's talking about our standing. It's talking about our identity in Christ. I'll never forget the first time I went to Australia years and years and years ago. Uh, there was a lady in a church that I had the opportunity to teach in, and she came up to me and you could tell just by looking at her, you know, sometimes people's story is written on their face. And you could just tell when you looked at this lady that this is a beaten down person. And she came up and was talking to me and I asked her the question, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Yes, I have. Uh, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And then she began beating herself down. All I do is fail. I'm not what I ought to be. I don't witness like I should and just kept beating and beating and beating herself down. And I shared with her a verse and it changed her life. She later wrote to me and told me the effect that it had had. I said, I want you to read Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. Because in Ephesians 1, 6, it tells us that we are, here are the words, accepted in the Beloved. Accept it in the beloved. What does that mean? And as I explained it to her, it was this. When you enter into the presence of God, He receives you and accepts you as if you were Christ Himself. God loves you with the love He has for His only begotten Son. God accepts you in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And once you get that understanding, it transforms your thinking, transforms your motivation, transforms the goals that you're setting for yourself. And because you understand your identity, 
you begin to become what God has called you. She wrote me sometime later, and at the end of her letter, she signed it at A-I-B. Accepted in the Beloved. I used to love the way Dr. Rodmacher used to say it. He said, you know, I'm imputed with the righteousness of Christ. He said, you know what that means? That makes me about as good as it gets. <laughs> and he was right. We need to understand our identity in Christ. Holy brethren, and then notice, holy brethren speaks of what God has done for us at the moment of salvation, but then he goes on to say, partakers of the heavenly calling. Partakers of the heavenly calling, and we need to look at that heavenly calling in two lights. And the first is the biggest. Our home is in eternity. This world is not our home. When Jesus gathered with those disciples in the upper room and began to tell them that he was about to be crucified, and there's no doubt in my mind that they reeled with the things that he was telling him and couldn't even comprehend how such things could happen. And then he said to Peter, if you'll remember at the end of John chapter 13, Peter says, Lord, I'm willing to die for you. And he said, Peter, before this night's out, you're going to deny me three times. And unfortunately, we get to the end of John chapter 13 and we stop reading because we'll read the next chapter next day, right? And sometimes chapter divisions rob us of what we really need to understand. I love it when I speak at uh, Bible schools and, and institutes. Uh, I was just talking with Roger about our institute over there in Papua New Guinea and I love to stand up in front of a, a seminary or Bible institute and say, I want all of you to understand there are some things in your Bible that are not inspired. Boy, you ought to see them bow up and they start getting ready to fight and they're going to argue with me. And I say, no, you need to understand there are things in your Bible that are not inspired. And then I kind of drop the, the uh, trap door on them and I say, your chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They came later. And therefore, don't let chapter divisions rob you of understanding what God wants us to get. So just sitting here, let's take a little test. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. What is the very next thing Jesus said to the disciples after he told Peter, you're going to deny me? You remember? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I am coming again to receive you to myself. Can you imagine the comfort that that must have given to Peter over those three days and nights pacing back and forth after the crucifixion of the Lord? And he's going through in his mind, what did he mean? What did he mean? I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again. And by the way, let's not forget, not only Peter denied the Lord, not only Peter said, I will go to death, Luke tells us that all the others said the same thing. And all of the others, just like Peter, denied him. So it's very important for us, as we look at this little text here in Hebrews 3, consider Jesus, holy brethren, partakers of that heavenly calling. We have heaven to look forward to. If you have a bright future to look forward to, you can endure anything. But then let's bring it back into time. We are partakers. 
The word metakos from meteko, it means to, to share together. We share something together. We are partners in a plan. And what is that partnership? That partnership is that we have a calling from God for the here and now. There's a reason we're here. Our lives have purpose and meaning. God has a plan for our lives and we need to be living in light of that eternal promise as we live our lives today. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. So we meditate on our Savior. Let's also meditate on our so great salvation. When we look at the person of Jesus Christ, it's always good for us to look at his work. And so the author moves from the supreme character of the deliverer to his work of deliverance in our lives. And it's very interesting that uh, this is a theme that often runs through Scripture. You'll see it in the Psalms over and over again. If you go to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you'll notice that the throngs of heaven all break out in a worship service and they're all singing about the greatness and the glory of the person of Christ in chapter 4. And then you go into chapter 5 and they all start singing again. And what are they singing about? You are worthy because you have redeemed us and called us to yourself. So it's a very, very common theme. Notice Hebrews 12, first three verses. Therefore, I might point out to you, both in chapter 3, verse 1, and here in 12, 1, the first word is therefore. I gave our students in the Friday night class a little exercise. I said, I want you to go through the book of Hebrews and I want you to find every therefore. And therefore always means that the author is reaching a conclusion. So I want you to go through, find the therefores and tell me what is the conclusion that he's reached. I think one person in the class did it. But hey, that's a victory, right? Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So what we basically have here is a command to focus in on the person of Christ. The word looking unto Jesus is interesting because it literally means to look away. Look away from something to something. And so I would ask you to contemplate, what would God have you in your life get your eyes off of? There's something in our lives that is constantly vying for the attention of our soul. What am I focusing on that I need to look away from? What am I distracted by that I need to get my eyes off of? Looking away from that, we need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it says, consider Jesus it uses the word legizomai, which means to take into account. It's a, actually a bookkeeper's term that means to add up all the facts and come to a conclusion. I would encourage you the next time you're going through a difficult time, sit down and add up 
the facts of what you know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Just sit down, take a piece of paper. This is really a practice of meditation and start writing down. Or take the promises of God and just start writing down the promise of God that you remember and then add up all of those facts and say, what is the conclusion from these things in relation to what I'm going to? And I can tell you that you will get up with a lot less burden on your shoulders than what you begin with. Not only does it have, however, the word legezomai, which means that we are to add up the facts and come to a conclusion, but it has the preposition ana. Very important, because ana means again and again and again. Don't just do it once. Don't just do it today. Over and over and over again, as you face the burdens, difficulties, heartaches, and trials of this life, over and over and over again, keep coming back to the focal point. You know, faith is objective. What do we mean by that? I just did a uh, conference in uh, Arizona shortly before coming up here, and the title of the conference was Victors or Victims. Did you know that everyone walking this earth today is either a victor or a victim? We have produced a generation of victims. We have taught people to think like victims. Victims never take responsibility. Victims always have an excuse. It's always beyond their control. It was either their upbringing or it's their circumstances or their environment. And so they remain losers for the rest of their life because they identify as a victim and therefore they're a victim. Victors think like winners. And victors begin from the solid foundation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to begin to think as the people that God has made us, as the victors that we are. So the idea of analogizomai is I'm thinking over and over and over about the person of Jesus Christ, what he has done, because if I think of him, is there any greater victor in history? No one can compare. That's part of the theme of the book of Romans. No one can compare to him. He's incomparable. And therefore, as I identify with him, and I believe that God created me, and God had a plan for my life, and God put me in the here and now, in the place that I am, and therefore God has a plan for my life that I be a miserable loser the rest of my life. I don't think so. God has a marvelous plan of what he wants to accomplish through each of us as a member of his body. And we need to think on that over and over and over again. Notice that uh, he talks about the fact that we uh, look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he had the ability to keep his focus on the things that mattered. To go to the cross with a realization of what it would accomplish. To go to the cross for you and I, knowing that he was making possible our entrance into the family of God and entrance into the body of Christ. And I personally take this really to an extreme degree. And by that, Isaiah tells us that when our sins pierced his soul, he felt the shame, the grief, the sorrow of every sin, which tells me that as he hung on the cross and my sins pierced his soul, he was thinking about me. He was thinking about you. 
He had you in mind as He paid the penalty for your sins. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And everyone says, yeah, the joy before Him was to sit at the right hand of the Father. No doubt that's true. But there's another joy that I think makes it more meaningful. He knew everyone who would ever believe. He knew each and every one of us that would trust in His finished work. There was joy in his soul in facing. Do you ever stop and just contemplate the cross? Say, yeah, man, they, they crammed that crown of thorns down on his head. And then they beat it down with a rod. And then they scourged him. Ripped the flesh from his back to the rib cage. And then they hung him on the cross. Have you ever stopped and thought about the fact that all of the physical sufferings he went through were so insignificant that he didn't even cry out. Scripture tells us that he was silent like a sheep before his shear, never uttered a cry. There's not a one of us here, there's no man that's ever lived that could go through the physical punishment alone and be silent. He didn't cry out until the sins of the world began to pierce his soul and he was separated from the Father and he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that to point us to Psalm 22 because on the cross, if you'll remember, he made seven statements on the cross and the key to every one of those seven statements is found in Psalm 22. He wanted us to read the psalm. Yes, he was experiencing it. He was expressing what he was going through, but he was pointing us to the word because thou will keep him in perfect... Where did we begin? Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And what was our Lord's mind riveted on in Gethsemane? It was on the Father, on the cross. It was on the Father. And therefore, he was able to scream out those words of Psalm 22. And yet, if you read through Psalm 22 and you see the depths that he went through and you come to the end of the psalm, what does he say? You have heard my prayer. I believe that the Lord was quoting Psalm 22 over and over, over and over as he hung on the cross, quoting it over and over as he meditated on this is why this is happening. When we consider the Lord Jesus Christ, we consider Him as the author and the finisher. I just want to close with this idea. We're a little bit early, but that's not a bad thing. The author and the finisher of our faith. First and foremost, I think this is what it means. He's the first one who ever ran the race and finished it in all of history. The word author is used earlier, I think, chapter 2 and verse 10. It's translated prince or captain. It means the one who is the leader, but who also blazes the trail. The Lord Jesus Christ blazed the trail for us through his life and through his death to show a heart and a soul completely surrendered, submitted, and dedicated to the plan and the purpose of God for his life. 
And then as the author and the finisher, not only the one who entered into the world as a helpless babe and ends up dying on the cross as a man condemned, but the author and the finisher of the one who started me on the race. Some of you know the story of my father. He was burned as a child in a one-room schoolhouse fire. His older brother died as a result of the fire. My dad was told he'd never walk again. The doctors wanted to amputate his legs. His parents refused to have that done. His mother spent hours and hours massaging life back into those burned and scarred legs. And in about a year, he learned to walk again and he actually found it easier to run than to walk. And so he ran everywhere. He had run to the field and run to school. And, and in time, he ran his way into the history books. He went to two Olympics. He set six world records. He and Jesse Owens were co-captains of the Olympic team in 1936. And so he had a pretty uh, distinguished career. But one of the funniest things he ever told me was as a kid, this was after he was burned and had recovered, his older brother was going to race another kid in the school. And uh, they said uh, to my dad, Glenn, come and start us off. And he was going to on your mark, get set, go and get him started. And then the other kid said, well, who's going to be at the finish to see who wins? My dad said, don't worry, I'll start you and then I'll run down and see who wins. <laughs> That's the author and the finisher. The day you met the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever it may have been, and I can remember so clear where it was for me, in a little church called Cumberland Bible Church, in Butler County, Kansas, on the banks of the Walnut River, a little white country church, just the way you picture it, sitting out there in the middle of nowhere, and I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know what happened that day? He said, on your mark, get set, go. The race began. And one day that race is going to finish. And I have many people that are dear to me, that are very close to death, you know, I'm getting to that age where people start reading the obituary. You want to know how many of your friends are left. And their, their race is almost run. And one day mine's going to be completed and I will run off this planet into eternity and I will run into the arms of the one who started me on the race. What will it mean on that day to have him say, well done? What will it mean on that day as you race into his arms? And I could show you a passage. I believe there's a passage in Scripture that actually shows us what a believer sees when they die. And I believe that we run right into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to say two things. One thing for sure, one thing maybe. Welcome home. That'll be the first. Talking with my friend Gary, he said, I'll see you when we get home. We may not meet again on this planet. I'll see you when we get home. Welcome home. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear him say, well done. You ran well. Yeah, you got tripped. Yeah, you, you tumbled off the track. But you know what? You didn't stay down. You got up, you got back on the track, you got back in your lane, and you ran. 
I want to hear those words. I hope that you want to hear them as well. Meditate on your Savior. Think of who He is. Think of what He's done. Just take a little bit of time. Find a quiet place. Pull apart and open the Scripture and read the promises that He's given to us. And then take a little bit of time. Pray about what you read and then think about what you've read. And you'll find something amazing. You'll find that the Spirit of God begins to bring from those passages, those promises, those principles, things that you never thought you'd see before. We're going to close here. We'll take a break. I think we go to 11, uh, break till 11. <coughs> and then uh, we'll come back and we'll get into study two. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your marvelous plan. Thank you for an amazing Savior. Uh, we don't have enough time in our lives really to contemplate or even to proclaim all of the wonders of who He is and what He's done. But I do pray that during this weekend together, You would draw us a little deeper into the reality of the Savior that we have and what we are because of Him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>